We've got two readings today. Uh, the first one is from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And we're reading chapter 25, uh, verses 6 to 9. Um, we don't have pew Bibles, but if you want to uh, pull out your phone and uh, look on an e-Bible, you can do that. Otherwise, it will be up on the screen. So this is Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Our second reading from the book of Luke is in chapter 14. And we're reading verses 1 to 14. This is Luke 14. Yes, that's right. One Sabbath... When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, Will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, They may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kirsten. Uh, we don't have um, kids' church today. However, um, uh, we have set up a new creche area in the foyer, which has its own speaker. So if you've got kids and you do need to go take them out, um, then you can still listen in to what's going on. Just going out through the door and turn to your right. Uh, let me pray as we look into this great passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, grant us by your Spirit 
uh, to so hear your words that they become not just words on a page, but life to us, joy to us, peace to us, hope to us. And may Jesus come into focus as the one who accomplishes all these things for us. Amen. Uh, I remember walking past a house that was for sale recently um, with a big billboard out the front, full color, as you know they do. Um, and in the description, well, the, the main headline was Entertainer's Delight. It had a deluxe kitchen, most modern, up to date appliances, marble bench, butler's pantry, so good. It was an, an advertisement, actually, not just for a house. Uh, before a kind of life, a lifestyle. If you had this house, this ad promises, then you will be able to invite all your myriad friends over and host them for dinner and entertain them, and they'll say, wow, you have that wow factor. Uh, there's occurred to me that there's a kind of odd irony to this, right? Because as much as this, this ad was saying, This house will be a place you can welcome others into. A lot about the way we build houses these days is um, the opposite of welcoming. In fact, they're designed to keep people at bay, if at all possible. Most people uh, buy houses where they can drive their car into the garage and then enter through the internal door and then exit through the internal door, drive back out again, and no one has ever seen them. Verandas used to be a part of modern architecture where you could sit out the front and chat to your neighbours. They're largely gone. And oftentimes you'll see that the hedge of the wall out the front is six foot high and so maximises privacy and just keeps the, the world at a bit of a, a distance. And even then, despite all these architectural uh, factors, it's quite uncertain whether the person who did buy that house would actually use it for the way it's advertised. They would actually really make it into an entertainer's delight. Uh, in a poll recently done by the website, renovation website house.com, uh, they, they asked the question, how often do you invite guests over to your house? 1,673 people responded. And of that number, 45%, almost half, said only a couple of times a year. A couple of times a year. And yet, despite this, lifestyle blogs continue to push out a constant stream of content about how you can be the perfect host, how you can host the perfect dinner party. No one in our culture thinks it's strange to entertain people at your house. People don't think that's strange, regardless of how often people might actually do it. But anyone who gets an inside look at Christian hospitality will probably think that's a bit strange. Christian hospitality, quite different from modern-day entertaining, is just a bit odd. What is it? What is Christian hospitality? Well, not the hospitality industry. You're not talking about cafes and restaurants and pubs. But if you work in the industry, then good on you. I did that once, and it was hard work. Uh, No, the authors of the New Testament um, often use the word hospitality. Well, actually, they use, more than anything, two words for hospitality, which is how it's translated in our English Bibles. Uh, One of them literally translates as the love of strangers, 
Or another one, the receiving of strangers. What do the two have in common? Strangers. At the heart of hospitality, at least in the way the Bible talks about it, is not entertaining friends, but welcoming strangers. Now, it's not just that. It's not just about welcoming people that you don't know into your home. 1 Peter 4 verse 9 says, Offer hospitality to one another. So the church is to actively welcome each other. And these are people that you know, you probably like, maybe even love. But it can't be limited to those people. So here's my definition. I say Christian hospitality is regularly opening your home in welcome to all types of people, both those you know and those you don't, people like you and people unlike you, the friend and the stranger. And our passage today in Luke shows that Christians must commit to this. Because doing so shows that we really, truly, and deeply understand the gospel. And because God uses hospitality in its practice to inject into our lives joy and goodness and into the lives of those we welcome. We must commit to this strange practice of hospitality. So I'm going to um, look at a few things uh, today. I'm going to look at what is hospitality. We're just going a little bit deeper. Why should we practice hospitality? And then how should we practice hospitality? So the what, the why, and the how. Uh, let's start with the what. Uh, Tim Chester, a great author, wrote a book called A Meal with Jesus. Uh, and in it, he quotes the New Testament commentator Robert Karras, um, whose uh, particular focus is the Gospel of Luke. And this is what Karras wrote. He said, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He's going to a meal, he's at a meal, he's coming from a meal. Jesus just went to a lot of meals. Now, granted, in his ministry, he didn't actually have his own home, and so he you know, relied on others to extend hospitality to them. And in that culture, that wasn't strange. People did that all the time. Uh, meals were really important in the first century. In the same book, uh, A Meal of Jesus, um, Tim Chester again quotes another guy, Scott Barchi, who wrote this. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with one another had become a ceremonially rich symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Friendship, intimacy, and unity. Wasn't, a meal wasn't just a meal. It was something that said, I, right now, I'm going to live and act like you are my family. We are intimate with each other. And in fact, Jesus described his ministry in the same way. He said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So there's something about this which was core to the way Jesus considered his life. And during his ministry, as I said, Jesus didn't have a home. And so he went to other people's houses. And here in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 14, we have a great instance of that. He uh, here is dining with a respected and wealthy and powerful man, a, um, a prominent Pharisee, a religious leader, a teacher. 
You might um, imagine going to uh, uh, the home of an archbishop for dinner, say, or give a secular example, maybe someone who's famous for giving TED Talks or a university professor or something. This is a member of the intellectual elite, someone who knew what he was talking about. Now, at this particular meal, there's a bunch of other people there. It's a dinner party. Uh, And there is a man also there who is suffering from what we today would call dropsy or an edema, an unnatural swelling of the body. This is bound to single him out at this dinner party and probably meant that he was either there uninvited, he just walked in, which happened sometimes in those days, or he was invited out of kind of pity. But chances were he wasn't in the place of honour. Jesus turns his attention to him and so everyone in the room turns their attention to Jesus. Why? It's a Sabbath. And they know Jesus is a miracle worker. And so they're wondering, is Jesus going to heal this man on the Sabbath? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they believed that God's law said that you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. True. And they included in that rule healing, miracles. And so they're wondering, is Jesus going to do work? Would he dare do that in the presence of this illustrious figure? Would he flout the Pharisees' own rules in the Pharisees' own house? There's this, imagine, uh, this awkward silence. And Jesus breaks the silence, not by saying anything, but by doing something. He presumably stands up from his recline, walks over to the man, and the text seems to suggest embraces him. And he's healed like that. Now, this context is really important uh, for what Jesus says a few verses down at the same house, at the same table, with the same guests. Uh, look, if you've got a Bible, look with me at verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, the prominent Pharisee, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. It's important that we realize that this was the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? A special day once a week when we would rest from our labors and experience restoration, refreshment, and celebration, to recognize that God is in control, and so we can not be. And one way to mark the Sabbath was through feasting, a time to slow down, slow the pace over a long meal of several hours with many courses. It was a chance to gather with family and neighbors and friends and just be physically and spiritually nourished together. Jesus as he walked into that dinner party, brought with him real hospitality into a house that was actually failing to show real hospitality. See, the the Pharisee was, uh, in the way I would put it, entertaining. He had his friends there. And actually, we know that they spent a lot of the meal jockeying for position, trying to work out who gets to sit next to the illustrious host. And we would imagine the man with dropsy pushed to the outer 
Jesus walked in and lived out hospitality. How? He prioritized the stranger. He prioritized the person on the margin, not the person in the center. Now, hospitality doesn't belong to just the Sabbath, doesn't belong to a special day. Hospitality is a practice for the everyday. But this story reveals the heart of hospitality. It tells us what hospitality is. And it's about creating conditions, particularly in your home, where friends and strangers can gather and experience the goodness and kindness of God. And so Jesus tells us, when you have a lunch or a brunch, because we're in Melbourne, or a dinner party, when you have anyone to your house, be just as quick to invite the stranger as the friend, the one on the edge as the people in the middle. The person unlike you as much as like you. The person in deep need as much as the person who is all together. Those on the edges of society as much or even more so than at the center. And in this way, hospitality becomes in our society strange because it means treating the stranger in your home like family. So that's what hospitality is. Why should we show it? Why should we practice this? Why should we lean into it? Well, Jesus is always concerned with motivation before application. He's always concerned about what's in the heart before he's concerned of what you do with your hands. Uh, and this is a prime example. He says that even the best hosts, even the most wonderful dinner party hosts, even the people who seem to show the best hospitality can welcome with wrong motives. And so this is what is implied. Jesus says, when, why would you let people in? Oh, so who you let people in will influence, oh, sorry, why you let people in will influence who you let in. The reason you let people in, the reason that you want to let people in will influence who you let in. Jesus says, don't invite people because you expect that they will somehow pay you back. I think this is the motive behind entertaining. This is why we do it, actually. Entertaining is done in order to get something. If my guests are sufficiently impressed, then I'll get something from them. What could I get? All sorts of things. Maybe an invitation back to their house. Is that something you want? Yeah? Maybe compliments on your exceptional cooking and fine tableware. Or, if you're, like, if you're like our house with a young family, wow, your house is so clean, even though you have kids. Yeah, it always is. I didn't just spend eight hours cleaning before you came. Or maybe if I invite this person, who's pretty wealthy, they'll bring a really great gift. And then here's two that might feel a bit closer to home. I'll invite people so that when they come, they'll feel jealous of my house, of my neighborhood, of my appliances, of my cleanliness, of my lifestyle. And then I'll get that shot of validation, that bit of endorphin rush that comes from the compliment. Or I'll invite someone because if I do, they'll treat me well. My boss, my colleague, even my friend. If I show hospitality to them, to, to them then maybe they'll just treat me better in life. Isn't it true that we can 
make that invite with all sorts of motivations. It's often mixed. Let's, not, let's be real. You can have mixed motivations, good ones and bad ones. But in this case, um, the motivation is not love of stranger. It's actually the love of self. It might look like hospitality, but deep down, it's all about building yourself up. Instead, Jesus tells us, make the invite without thought of repayment of any kind. Don't expect a quid pro quo invite back. Don't let your ears itch for compliments. Don't invite people on the basis of what they might bring. Don't invite people to the house you spent hours making look perfect so they would be envious of your lifestyle. Don't invite people because you hope that if you do, they'll like you more and treat you better. Instead, Jesus says, invite those who cannot repay you. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And of course, we should extend hospitality to all types of people. And I think behind Jesus' statement is, is this concept. Um, that if you're the type of person who can joyfully, delightfully invite people who truly cannot repay you, the marginalized of society, then you'll probably be the type of person who can invite your actual friends and people you know and like without expecting repayment from them. And yet, Jesus says, despite this, there is something in it for you. It's not purely self-giving. It's just that the payoff is not immediate and it's not just about your own self-satisfaction. Jesus says, do this and you will be what? Blessed. Do this and you'll be blessed. What does that mean? Blessed uh, in the Gospels often has this idea of flourishing, of a good life actually. And God promises that this kind of lifestyle will bring unexpected joys. That when you open your home wide and you invite people in willingly, graciously, without expecting to be repaid, it will grow you in goodness and kindness and humility and compassion. And that's good. And Jesus also says that there will be a reward because you will be repaid, just not right now. You'll be repaid on the last day. When Jesus comes and again, again and the dead are raised. Jesus often riffed on the metaphor um, for God's kingdom being a great banquet that the king throws. And he uses that in this very chapter. He is probably um, using some of the imagery from the Isaiah reading we had before. A rich banquet of aged meat and wine. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? Jesus says... Basically, if you are the sort of person who welcomes people into your home to feast at your table, then God will welcome you into his home and invite you to feast at his table. So why should we practice true hospitality? Because it will form us through practicing kindness in this life, will form us for life to come. So that's the why, finally the how. Uh, our family um, were recently in the UK on holiday. And I wanted to pull out from that, that experience two uh, types of hospitality. One of the places we went to was Chatsworth House. Has anyone ever been there? 
uh, where famously Pride and Prejudice was filmed, amongst many others. Um, and uh, it's, look, it's basically a palace. House is definitely too low a word for it. It's a palace. And it's still the residence of the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. And they live there. And they regularly, according to our tour guide, host friends there. Wouldn't that be some invitation? And as we were going through on our tour, we went past a bedroom. And that bedroom there on the right. And I asked them, I said, oh, that's an interesting bed. What's to go there? And she said, oh, yes, it's a piece of modern art that they had installed. And I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's just obviously for the show. I said, no, 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 that's one of the guest bedrooms. Imagine getting that one. <laughs> you wouldn't want to sleep in the bed. Uh, another experience could not have been more different. A local pub in Cornwall, a Cornish pub, this was not a palace. <laughs> it was barely a house. Uh, it was a place where locals, mostly miners, gathered to share stories, laughter, food and drink alongside random Australian tourists. <laughs> Whoever walked in the door was welcomed. And there is a gigantic brush out the front for muddy boots, which I love and a real fire in the fireplace. There was a jukebox playing, the only music in the place, and you had to reset the jukebox after every song, which meant a significant awkward pause between each song. And the pie was delicious and hearty, but not of the highest quality ingredients, if I may put it that way. Now, why do I pull out these two experiences? Well, it's tempting, I think, to think of a home more like Chatsworth House, like the palace. The only people invited there are those who the hosts believe deserve to be there. And the experience is designed to showcase the hosts, the Duke and Duchess, and their extraordinary wealth and house. But perhaps we would be better off imagining our homes more like the Cornish pub, as a place for weary bodies to find rest, where warmth and coziness is more of a priority than immaculate cleanliness, where our best is offered, but it's okay if our best isn't perfect, where stories and laughter take precedence over etiquette and manners, where the experience is designed not to highlight the hosts, but the guests, and to make whoever they are, wherever they're from, down the road or across the world, at home. I've experienced hospitality, Christian hospitality, in that vein. I remember going to, on a trip to Seattle uh, where I reached out to a pastor friend and asked if there was a place I could stay. And he said, yep, just turn up at this address. And so I did. And that was the house of Jeff and Karen Wall, who I'd never met and may never meet again. But they welcomed me into their house. They gave me their best room. They drove me around Seattle they invite me to participate in their missional community for the night. I like to think um, a little bit closer to home, and they're not here so I can embarrass them, Dave and Saskia. They are great at showing hospitality. When we first, our missional community first started meeting in their home for dinner, um, they had a, a padlock, a, sorry, a code lock on their door, very unusual, uh, and they gave us all the codes that if we turned up and they weren't home yet from work, we could just let ourselves in and turn the oven on which we did. And when they moved to another apartment, the first thing they did was put a code lock on the door. Cindy and Bob Derenbacher, um, uh, part of our church as well, 
And Bob is the Dean of Trinity Theological College. And I know they've made a whole ministry out of inviting international students back to their house who live at the Trinity Residential College just to show hospitality to the people who are strangers in a strange land. Peter and Robin Bryce, part of our church, when they moved into their block of townhouses, the first thing they did was talk to and meet everybody in the block and invite them for tea. When we, uh, Jackie and I were starting Inner West, one of the first things we did was look for a house with a sufficient dining room, and then we bought a new dining table that was extendable that could fit 12 people around it. We've still got the same table. I've seen our community practice hospitality right here on Sundays when a new person walks through the door and I'm not the first person to go and meet them. Our community is our spiritual home and so we practice hospitality when we welcome them into whatever space we happen to meet. Those are some examples. Here are some practices. Here are just things we could do, I think. One of the things is set aside time in your calendar for hospitality, even if you have no one yet to invite into that space. It helps to keep you accountable to use it. Consider inviting a neighbor at least once every couple of months, if not more. Offer good food and drink, but don't show off. It doesn't have to be an eight-course degustation, but it can be more than a Tim Tam. Just saying. And inviting people into your home is inviting them into your real life. So it's okay if there's a bit of unfolded laundry in the corner. It's okay if there's a few scattered kids' toys. (laughs) But make people feel comfortable. It's okay to tidy a little bit. And it's okay to set boundaries. How often people come, how long they stay, what parts of the house are used. But if those boundaries are sometimes broken, then be gracious. Be gracious as you'd want others to be gracious to you. And if you are part of a couple or a family, then be in agreement about what your rhythm of hospitality is going to be and listen to each other's capacity because one of you might be extroverted, one of you might be introverted. You need to meet in the middle. And don't go from zero to 100. Don't go out today and say, great, I'm going to give, open my home, open door, anyone's allowed, anytime, anywhere. Be real with yourself and build yourself up so you don't burn out. And if you're in a missional community, one of the best things you can start doing is offer the host. Offer to have your missional community to your house. Those are some things we can do. But here are some obstacles, some things that will get in the way. Here's why we don't necessarily do such a great job all the time. One is mess. My place is too messy. One is space. My place isn't great for hosting. One is fear. If I let people in, my place won't be a refuge anymore. And here's the big one. Time. I'm too busy. Some of those might be valid. Some of them might be real challenges that are actual obstacles. Some of them might just be excuses. But if they are obstacles, they can be overcome with a bit of creative thinking. Now, maybe you're already inspired and you're thinking, I'm going to do it, I'm going to make time, I'm going to make space, I'm going to push past this. Man, this sermon is so inspiring. I'm just really just floored right now. That's okay if that's you. Uh, No, here's the truth. Um, If you want hospitality to be not just a flash in the pan, not just something you do for a few weeks, but something for your entire life, it's going to take more than a sermon. It takes actually 
something deeper, something more profound. It takes grasping the gospel in a way where it grabs hold of you and your priorities, where it changes you from the inside out so that hospitality flows out of you. Jesus said, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You know what? God said, when I come into this world and I come incarnated as the person of Jesus Christ, I'm going to send out an invitation. Come and join me at my table. Come and join me at my heavenly banquet. Come and enjoy my hospitality. And who did that invitation go out to? Went to the spiritually poor who have little to hope for, the spiritually lame and crippled whose hearts are, and souls are broken and battered, the spiritually blind who cannot see what's real or the way ahead, the poor, the lame, the crippled and blind. In other words, family, the invitation was for us. We are the poor who in Christ are made rich. We are the lame and the crippled who in Christ are healed, made whole. We are the blind whom Christ has made see. We are the ones who are invited to the banquet, not because we make great guests, quite the opposite, because of the graciousness of the great host, the one who went so far as to die so that we can come and take our seats at the banquet table, come into a relationship with God without fear, without shame, without guilt. We've all received incredible hospitality from God. And so when we live out of this strange habit in our world, even an invitation to share soup and bread is transformed into something else, an embodiment of the gospel, a signpost pointing to something greater. It's a way of saying, come and enjoy this hospitality. Come, let me welcome you as a stranger because I know I was welcomed as a stranger because I know I was welcomed despite the fact that I was on the edge. I was on the outer. I was on the margin, yet I've been brought in. And if that happens, to the extent that that gospel grasps our heart, then hospitality will flow willingly, joyfully, sacrificially. Let me finish with a quote from uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, another one on hospitality. She said this, At our house, some people come early and some people come late. Some people come because they want to know why all the cars are parked outside our house. Some people bring food. Some people bring friends. This feast of grace is our mainstay, and we intentionally seek out unbelievers to join us. We are distinctly set apart for Christ, and we are invested in the world, serving others, beckoning others to taste and feel that the Lord is good. May we take up the call to serve and beckon others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me pray and then uh, Kirsten's going to come up. Heavenly Father, may we so grasp uh, the gospel that we were so undeserving of a place at your table and yet you invited us in and gave us places of honour through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for us. May we have that so forefront in our minds that we learn to open our homes willingly, graciously, consistently to the stranger, to the one far off, to our neighbours, and yes, to our friends. And may it transform the way we see our lives 
and our spaces. Amen.